It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 19-year-old Barry Minko stood tense in a well-appointed office, his file of documents clutched to his chest. Across from him, Ron Knox was large and imposing behind a formidable desk. At his signal, Barry handed over his files and waited, unsure whether he was supposed to speak as Knox flipped through his papers. Ultimately, Barry opted for silence. Yes, he wanted Knox to invest, but, well, you just didn't rush a mobster. Knox asked, How long has Z Best been in business? Barry told him that he'd started his carpet cleaning company a few months after turning 16. He confirmed, Yes, he was the sole owner. Yes, Z Best was profitable. Yes, all his building restoration projects were legitimate. He'd be happy to have his insurance guy verify the contracts. In response, Knox asked the question of the hour. If Barry's business was doing so well, why did he need funding from Knox? Why not get a loan from a bank? Barry responded, Banks and I have never gotten along. When I opened the company, several of them closed my accounts because I was underage. His youth being a disqualifying factor was explanation enough. So Knox agreed. He'd provide Barry with the funds. He'd extend him a loan of $100,000. And Barry should have been excited. It was the exact response he was looking for. Instead, he was nervous because he'd lied. His business wasn't profitable. His restoration projects didn't exist. In fact, Z-Best was nothing more than a Ponzi scheme. And now, Barry had just involved a powerful mobster in his tenuous house of cards. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This week, we'll meet Barry Minko, a veritable Con Artist prodigy whose shady business dealings landed him behind bars. Today, in part one, we'll detail how Barry founded his carpet cleaning business while still in high school. 
Then we'll explore how a slew of bad decisions, high interest loans, and questionable ethics turned his enterprise into one of the largest Ponzi schemes ever conducted. Next week in part two, we'll detail how Barry's fraud was discovered, landing him behind bars. Then we'll explore how he reinvented himself as a pastor and fraud consultant for the FBI, only to once again engage in illegal financial activities. Barry Minko always wanted to be important. He had an almost obsessive need to be in the spotlight. This trait was best exemplified by his behavior in the classroom. When his teachers asked a question, Barry never bothered raising his hand like the other kids. Instead, he would blurt out the answers. According to his father, he did it for attention. Barry's compulsive desire for attention was possibly an early sign of narcissism. According to social psychologists Roy F. Baumeister and Kathleen D. Voss, narcissists are addicted to the admiration of others. They require an incessant supply of it so that they might reinforce an overinflated self-view. However, when classroom disruptiveness failed to get Barry the attention he craved, he used money instead. Barry would buy other kids in his Reseda, California neighborhood candy. This showboating display made them like him. On another occasion, nine-year-old Barry showed up at a neighbor's house wearing a suit and tie. He offered to buy the girl next door an ice cream cone, but only if she agreed to him coming along. In both these episodes, it's clear that from a young age, Barry used money to get attention and to manipulate people. This early regard for money also meant that Barry had very little respect for his father, Robert, who was always broke. In Barry's eyes, Robert's lack of money made him weak and inadequate. So instead of striving to emulate his father, Barry sought to surpass him. To accumulate the money he held in such high regard, Barry took on a series of odd jobs as soon as he was able. First, he delivered newspapers. When that didn't prove as lucrative as he'd hoped, 12-year-old Barry applied for a job at a local hot dog stand. There was only one problem. In California, a child could get a paper route at 12, but any other legal employment required them to be at least 14. So, Barry lied on his application. It was one of the first examples of his penchant to bend the truth to get the things he wanted. As lies went, that one was easy to rationalize. After all, it wasn't hurting anybody. He was just trying to get a job. Regardless of the ethics behind his actions, Barry's deceit was rewarded when he was given the hot dog stand job. Within three weeks, he was promoted to assistant manager. And then, Barry's boss discovered his real age and fired him. But Barry wasn't discouraged. His mother, Carol, solicited clients on the phone for the carpet cleaning company she worked for. Barry didn't see any reason why he couldn't make money the same way. He asked his mother to get him a job, and Carol agreed. Even though he was only 12 years old, Barry quickly realized he'd have more luck soliciting carpet cleaning clients if he were a girl. 
So before picking up the phone, Barry would pitch his voice higher, making him sound feminine to the men on the other end of the line. His act was so successful that reportedly these oblivious men sometimes asked Barry on dates. He obviously declined, but his subterfuge was yet another sign of his willingness to massage the truth. Ultimately, Barry's hustling and entrepreneurial pursuits afforded him the ability to engage in more narcissistic attention-seeking. By 1980, 14-year-old Barry Minko was utilizing his carpet solicitation money in the halls of Grover Cleveland Charter High. According to Daniel Act's book on Barry Minko, he came to school in a brown polyester suit, a striped tie, tennis shoes, and he carried an attaché case. Inside the case, he kept his checkbook. Peers who knew him at the time remembered Barry writing checks for all manner of things. Even if he just wanted to buy a burrito at the school cafeteria, he would make out a check for as little as $1 or $2 at a time. Though his behavior was so clearly outlandish, Barry didn't care. As far as he was concerned, he looked cool. When he wasn't cashing $1 burrito checks, Barry used his money to try and get girls to go out with him. To this end, he once tried to pay a girl $100 to go on a date. This was the teenaged version of the ice cream trick that he'd pulled with his neighbor a couple years earlier. Yet, despite his cash flow, Barry still found himself on the outside of the popular group at school. Nothing exemplified this more than the cool table in Grover High's cafeteria. Barry would stare, entranced, at the in-crowd as they talked and laughed. They were the rich kids, the star athletes, and their gorgeous cheerleader girlfriends. Their table was centered in the cafeteria. And though, in reality, they were only a couple feet away from where Barry sat, Reaching the distance between the two tables would have been like going from Siberia to the Promised Land. It might have felt like an impossible task to a less determined teenager, but Barry could never be accused of lacking determination. So instead of throwing his hands up in defeat, he noted the inclusion of athletes in the cool group. He wasn't that adept at sports, but he decided he could at least mimic the physique of the popular guys. He joined a local gym. 14-year-old Barry scoped out a gym in Reseda, California in the summer of his freshman year. The gym's membership dues were steep. However, in a show of his growing sales abilities, Barry worked it out with the gym's manager. In exchange for scrubbing the gym's showers, he was given free use of its facilities. As with every other activity in his life, Barry approached working out with vigor. He pumped iron for four hours a day at least four days a week. And yet, on checking his progress in the mirror, he wasn't happy with the image staring back at him. If he was going to infiltrate the cool group, he'd have to build muscle faster. So Barry began taking the anabolic steroid, Dianabol. It worked like a charm. According to Act's biography, Wonderboy, Barry transformed himself into a Hulk virtually overnight, 
and was able to maintain an impressive amount of muscle. However, an improved physique wasn't the most important thing that Barry gained from the gym. The most important thing was the friendship he struck up with Jerry Williams, a local loan shark. To Barry, Jerry Williams was everything his father wasn't. He was a bull of a man, able to easily bench press over 400 pounds, and perhaps most importantly, Jerry was stinking rich. Barry's father might have struggled to pay the electric bill, but Jerry, he strutted around the gym with wads of cash stuffed in his pockets like it was nothing. In Barry's eyes, this made him a god. In a later interview, Barry said, Jerry was my idol. He used to come into the gym and have money and be nice to me. He was like the father I never had. I loved him. Perhaps it was Barry's infatuation with Jerry's success that made him revert back to his initial strategy. Working out wasn't the best route to the cool table. Money was. But instead of piddling around slinging newspapers and cold-calling clients, Barry needed real money. Jerry-level money. According to his autobiography, Cleaning Up, Barry soon concluded that the best way to obtain such funds was to start his own business. And since carpet cleaning was the only game he knew, he decided to open his own shop. But before he could do that, Barry knew he needed some seed money. There seemed no better person to ask than his friend and idol, Jerry. It's unclear why Jerry consented to helping Barry with his business. Maybe he recognized a little bit of himself in the enterprising young man. Or maybe Jerry saw an easy mark. Whatever the reason, in October 1982, he agreed to loan 16-year-old Barry Minko $1,600 to start his own carpet cleaning business. That amounts to around $4,300 today. However, his terms were eye-wateringly burdensome. Jerry demanded $200 a week in interest payments. These financial outlays wouldn't even touch the principal which Barry would continue to owe him. Regardless of the predatory nature of the loan, Barry was excited. How many other 16-year-olds could say they'd hooked a loan shark and filed forms to start their own business? Coming up, Barry gets in over his head. Now, back to the story. In late 1982, 16-year-old Barry Minko convinced Jerry Williams, a local loan shark, to offer him $1,600 to start his carpet cleaning business. Despite the predatorily high interest payments Jerry tacked onto the loan, Barry was certain that he could make a success of his new venture. His confidence was predicated on the fact that Barry knew the carpet cleaning business inside out. In addition, there were absolutely no barriers to entry. So immediately upon getting the loan from Jerry, Barry got to work. First, he purchased some equipment on the cheap. Then he hired his mother, Carol, and his neighbor, Vera, to work the phones, soliciting clients for $225 a week. Once those preliminary building blocks were in place, Barry had to come up with a name. After some thought, he chose Z-Best, 
When asked, he later said he'd picked four Zs because he hoped to have four kids. But more likely than not, Barry picked the name because he liked the way his catchy slogan sounded. You've tried the rest, now come to Z-Best. And lately, Barry was feeling like Z-Best. Matter of fact, he was feeling on top of the world because shortly after filing for a business license, the Diners Club sent him a credit card. And with that gorgeous sliver of plastic, a whole new world opened up. Barry started wielding his diner's credit card like he was Santa Claus. Pretty soon, the cool kids at school figured out that he'd take them to any restaurant of their choice and pick up the entire tab, no questions asked. This spending opened the doors to the best football parties. It bought Barry a coveted seat at the popular table. And finally, he was no longer on the outside. As he enjoyed his attention, Barry tried not to question if the hot girls and cool athletes liked him or his money. After all, didn't it all come out to the same thing? And Barry's success was also garnering him attention from adults. When he'd show up to clients' houses to clean, they were in awe of the fact that he owned his own business at 16. So, Barry decided to work it. He'd casually slip his young business owner status into conversation before they even asked. Then, he'd watch their eyes go wide as they spouted all sorts of stuff about how their kids were lazy or on drugs and they couldn't get them to do anything. After a couple rounds of this ego-massaging exercise, Barry figured if his adult clients were impressed, the media was bound to go nuts for his story too. So Barry called up a local reporter and deepened his voice. Pretending to be one of his impressed clients, he raved about the young business owner who just cleaned his carpets. Then he went in on the guy, asking why the news was only interested in covering stories about kids on drugs or in gangs. Why not cover a kid who was doing something good for a change, something impressive? The reporter took the bait. He did think this Barry kid sounded interesting. Matter of fact, he'd like to interview him. Barry, still pretending to be a client, gave the journalist his own number, then hung up. A few minutes later, the journalist called and arranged to meet Barry for an in-person interview. The entire time, he had no idea that the kid he was speaking to was the same person who just called him moments earlier. Later. After Barry was interviewed and the footage aired, he became something of a local celebrity. He was the whiz kid, the son you only wished you had, the wunderkind. Unfortunately for Barry, his exposure came with greater scrutiny. On starting his company, Barry had opened a bank account to process payments. There was only one problem. As a minor, he wasn't allowed to open a bank account. All the publicity alerted the bank that he was underage. They shut down his account and Barry grew desperate. Without a way to receive his payments and pay his workers, he didn't have a business. He had nothing. Barry refused to go back to being a nobody, so he decided to visit Joe's Quickie Mart. Joe was a family friend, known for his generosity. 
This made him the perfect guy to ask for help. After explaining the problem, Joe told Barry he'd help cash his checks. Even better, if Barry ever needed to pay a bill, then Joe would give him a money order made out to anyone he wanted. All Barry had to do was pay him in cash. Barry was thrilled. Joe's help would let him bypass the banks, putting him back in business. Unfortunately, Barry still had problems, because as it turned out, running his own business was more complicated than he'd ever imagined. From almost the very start of Z-Best, Barry had cash flow issues. First, there was all his diner's club card debt. His attempts to buy his way into the cool group came with a hefty price tag. Then there was payroll. He owed his mother Carol and neighbor Vera $225 a week. Then there was Mike and his partner, the two carpet cleaners he had on staff. Since Barry was in school on weekdays, they did most of the cleaning. For their services, Barry had to pay them 50% of whatever they brought in. And then there was Jerry. Barry owed him $200 a week in pure interest every week, rain or shine, no matter what. Jerry was a big guy, and Barry didn't want to find out what was on the other side of that smile of his. So, to cover all of his expenses, Barry started writing checks. Bad checks. The fact that his official bank account had been shut down meant that all those chickens would soon come home to roost. When Barry arrived home from Joe's Quickie Mart, he realized they already had. He knew it the minute he saw his mother's face. And then she opened her mouth and said, Jerry called about some checks. He sounded angry. After some quick talking on the phone, Barry convinced Jerry to meet him in person. He knew face-to-face -face was the only way to do it. Barry was a salesman. And if he could look Jerry in the eye, then he could sell him on what he needed. The minute Jerry opened the door to his house, Barry started working him. First, he came out with a sob story about the bank closing his account. Then, when Jerry's sympathies were primed, Barry told him about Joe's offer of money orders. At that, Jerry smiled. Money orders were guaranteed cash. They never bounced. Nevertheless, he refused to budge on the amount he said Barry owed, a staggering $500. With all his expenses, Barry didn't have enough to cover Jerry's fee. But a good salesman knew when to stop pushing. So Barry agreed. On leaving Jerry's house, Barry started crunching figures. If he gave Jerry $500, then he'd only have $600 left over. Payroll and the phone bill cost a combined $1,000, so he was $400 short. That meant he'd either have to risk his phone being cut off and his employees quitting, or he would have to stiff Jerry, the muscle-bound loan shark. So he went to Joe's store to get a money order for Jerry. In the middle of making out the money order, Joe stopped. He needed to head to the back to get his ledger so he could note the transaction. In his absence, Barry was left alone with a box of money orders and an imprinting stamp. And it would be so easy. 
All Barry had to do was make out a money order for the $400 he was short, and all his problems would be history. And yet, Barry hesitated. Up until this moment, he'd merely massaged the truth. They were piddly lies, small little nothings that didn't harm anybody. But the act he was contemplating now, that was theft. That was a crime. And Joe was his friend. He'd done Barry a solid. Was this really how Barry was going to repay him? By stealing his money? After a long beat. Barry reached out for the imprinting stamp. Shortly after, the stolen money orders were safe in his pocket. And by the time Joe returned from the back of the store, Barry had already rationalized away the crime. According to Minko's book, he told himself he had people depending on him. It wasn't his fault the bank shut down his account. He'd find a way to pay Joe back. His justifications were effective enough that by the time Barry walked out of Joe's store, he didn't even feel guilty. The way he saw it, he didn't have a choice. After the episode with Joe, Barry put it out of his mind. He had other problems. He'd realized that running a business without a checking account was almost impossible. So he began searching for a new bank. When he met Doug Fitzgerald at Town Bank, Barry got the feeling that he was the kind of older man who'd be flattered to mentor a young business owner. That's why he was honest with Doug about being underage. Barry's cold read of Doug proved accurate when the older man agreed to open a checking account for him, despite it being against the law. However, Doug had one caveat. Since Barry was underage, Doug would monitor all his transactions closely. Barry nodded. That was fine by him. And yet, even while knowing Doug was watching, Barry started misusing his town bank account almost immediately. The money he'd stolen from Joe helped solve his cash flow problems momentarily. But a moment was all it bought him. Once the money was gone, he still had payroll and Jerry's interest payments to worry about every week. So when Jerry helped him open another account at Second Savings Bank, Barry immediately started engaging in check-kiting. Check-kiting is the act of writing a check of non-existent funds from one bank account and depositing it into another. Then, writing another check of non-existent funds from the second bank account and depositing it into the first. This activity falsely inflates the balance of both accounts, allowing checks that would otherwise bounce to clear. It's a temporary solution because, eventually, both banks realize the funds don't exist, causing both accounts to fall into the red. Barry didn't care that his account would be overdrawn in the near future. He only cared that he could get his hands on cash in the present. Yet. Even with his check-kiting activities, Barry still wasn't able to pull together enough money to solve his cash flow problems. So he did something despicable. Barry stole his grandmother's jewelry and pawned it 
for cash. He told himself he was doing it for his employees. He told himself that he had no choice. Like he did with Joe, Barry was able to assuage any remnants of guilt. Shortly after robbing his grandmother, school let out for the summer. This meant that Barry could fire his two contract cleaners and take on all the carpet cleaning, as well as 100% of its profits himself. This gave him some breathing room on payroll. However, before he could celebrate making his payments on time, two terrible developments occurred. First, his grandmother discovered her missing jewelry. Even worse, she knew that Barry had been the last person in her house before her valuables disappeared. Shortly after receiving this news, Barry heard from Joe. He too had discovered his missing money orders. Like Barry's grandmother, Joe also remembered Barry being the only person he'd left alone with both the orders and the stamp. Fortunately for Barry, he'd become very good at manipulating people. He was able to convince both his grandmother and Joe that their very reasonable suspicions were completely off the mark. And after multiple rounds of denials and deflections, they both let him off the hook. Barry celebrated getting away with theft by expanding his business. Despite the fact that his organization was held together by lies, Barry felt he had outgrown his parents' garage. So he rented two offices at the Reseda Business Center. As his operation grew, so too did Barry's ego. Shortly after settling into his new offices, he began insisting his employees call him Mr. Minko. This rule extended towards his own mother. His fancy new locale and the airs that went along with it disguised the truth. In reality, Barry couldn't even afford the phone lines at his new offices without begging for more money from Jerry. To cover the ensuing interest payments, Barry resorted to more check-kiting. But this time, Doug at Town Bank noticed his fraudulent activities. And he was furious. Coming up. Doug confronts Barry Minko with evidence of his graft. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1983, bank manager Doug Fitzgerald discovered that 17-year-old Barry Minko had abused his trust by writing bad checks. Enraged, Doug yanked Barry into his office. He demanded an explanation. As was his usual penchant, Barry used his young age as an excuse for his crime. But this time, Doug wasn't buying it. He told Barry that his actions spoke to a concerning lack of integrity. On seeing Barry's remorseful expression, however, Doug softened. He agreed to give Barry the opportunity to pay off his overdrawn balance. But, he threatened, if Barry ever pulled such a thing again, Doug would immediately shut down his account. Barry effusively promised to pay down the balance, and by picking up as many jobs as he could that summer, he uncharacteristically kept his word, paying down his overdraft at Town Bank. But, as was the norm, with the solution of one problem came the emergence of another. 
diverting so much money to pay Doug meant that Barry had fallen behind on payroll and interest payments to Jerry. Barry incomprehensibly decided that the only way to make up his cash deficit was to open a new, more profitable branch of Z-Best. Barry couldn't ask Jerry for the money to open the new branch. He was already into him for a lot of cash for the first branch. Instead, Barry started considering a new scheme to raise funds, namely insurance fraud. This was a natural progression. By the time Barry graduated to considering insurance fraud, the crime was likely comically easy to justify. After all, Joe was a friend and his grandmother was family, but who was on the other end of this thing? A company? A soulless corporation? It was a victimless act. With that squared away, Barry staged a robbery at his offices in the Reseda Business Center. Although maybe robbery was too fancy a term. In reality, Barry just waited till his employees had left one night. Then he pulled out a couple drawers, threw away some old cleaner, and called himself robbed. In the morning, he acted surprised along with his employees. Then he asked his mother to make a report to the police. Once she had, Barry filed an insurance claim. A few scant days later, an adjuster cut him a check for 12 grand. According to Minko's biography, the whole episode was almost too easy. However, as Barry went to Town Bank to drop off the insurance money, he realized he would need to explain the massive check. Doug had been to the Z-Best offices. He knew that nothing in there was worth up to $12,000. That meant Barry couldn't sell him on the robbery story. So Barry decided to tell Doug that the money was payment for some building restoration work that Z-Best had done. The lie popped into his head out of nowhere. Z-Best had never done any restoration work, never even been asked. And yet, when Barry fed Doug the line, he swallowed it. It seemed all Barry had to say was restoration work and like magic. Doug was depositing his large insurance check, no more questions asked. It was an episode Barry would keep in mind for the future. In the present, he started planning how to use his windfall to open a second branch of Z-Best. A few weeks after depositing the large insurance check, Barry opened his second branch in Thousand Oaks, California. Mere months later, he was already in the red. And soon, he was once again struggling to make interest payments to Jerry. Even more concerning, Barry's 18th birthday was fast approaching. He was afraid of aging out of his boy wonder cachet. The only way Barry could avoid this loss in prominence was to become exceptional even for an adult. To that end, Barry decided that he needed to open more branches and expand even faster. So in 1984, on turning 18, Barry exercised his new adult rights to open multiple checking accounts. This allowed him to escalate his check-kiting activities. Then, in a bid to raise even more money for a third branch, Barry staged yet another robbery. This time, at his new Thousand Oaks offices. However, 
Two robberies and two insurance claims in such a short time frame strained credulity. So, to head off suspicions, Barry alleged that his bizarre rash of break-ins was due to competitors who were jealous of his success. Bizarrely, this was enough to quell suspicion, allowing him to collect on his second fraudulent claim. However, by the time Barry graduated from high school a few months later, the money from the Thousand Oaks insurance scam was already dwindling. This time, to solve his cash flow problems, Barry put an ad in the Los Angeles Times asking for investors. Paul Weaver, a successful local businessman, responded. In their meeting, Barry claimed that his carpet cleaning business was really profitable. He also repeated the lie about having a building restoration division. Then he said he only needed an influx of cash to expand his operation. Paul bought Barry's tail and agreed to loan him $25,000, around $62,000 today. However, like Jerry before him, Paul required exorbitantly high interest fees on the loan. Barry's financial position was so tenuous that he couldn't afford to push back on Paul's predatory demands. So, he accepted the terms and used the new inflow of cash to service Jerry's interest payments and his consistent payroll demands. At this point, Barry's activities constituted a full-blown Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme is a form of financial malfeasance in which a fraudulent business uses the money of new investors to pay off old investors. Z-Best could be classified as fraudulent because Barry was inflating the supposed revenue of his unprofitable carpet cleaning business in order to entice new investors to give him more money. Furthermore, the restoration business, which he claimed granted him the bulk of his profits, didn't even exist. Due to the counterfeit nature of his underlying business, Barry consistently had to find new sources of capital to keep his whole house of cards from falling down. Thus, after taking Paul's money, Barry had to find yet another investor to keep up. Another ad in the LA Times delivered him another investor, Rick Price. However, unlike Paul and Jerry before him, Rick required a full financial accounting of Barry's business. He demanded proof of Barry's restoration arm. Furthermore, Rick would only accept documentation of these restorations from an accredited insurance company. Since there were no building restorations, Barry needed to come up with a plan. After discreetly asking around, Barry found an unscrupulous accountant. For a large fee, the accountant agreed to sign off on fabricated records that made it seem as though Barry's restoration business was all he claimed. The cooked books were enough to convince Rick to loan Barry a large sum. Barry used a portion of the proceeds to service Jerry and Paul's interest payments. As for the rest of the money, Barry used it to buy himself a swanky car and a two-bedroom condo in Canoga Park. These accoutrements of his supposed success garnered him more admiration than ever before. And despite the fact that he was spinning a complicated and unsustainable web of lies, Barry didn't care. Once again, 
he prioritized the appearance of success over everything else. In 1986, 19-year-old Barry's cultivation of the image of success seemed to pay off. Entrepreneur magazine wrote a glowing article about him. The profile won him admiration from readers across the country. However, those readers had no idea that over the course of the past year, Barry had become putting fraudulent charges on his customers' credit cards to keep up with the demands of his numerous high-interest loans. Yet, despite sinking to defrauding his customers, Barry still managed to fall behind on paying Rick Price. Consequently, before the ink on the newspapers lauding his success was even dry, Rick sued Barry in open court. If he thought the 19-year-old would just roll over and pay, he was wrong. Barry hired a lawyer and mounted a case, stating that the interest requirements of Rick's loans were predatory. In a startling turn of events, the court sided with Barry, allowing him to forfeit the rest of Rick Price's interest payments. Even with this clear victory, by May 1986, Barry still owed an exorbitant amount of money on his initial loan from Jerry. Furthermore, his clients had begun disputing the fraudulent charges he put on their credit cards. While Barry was able to blame the charges on unscrupulous contractors who he'd since fired, he still had to pay back the cost. And he had no idea how to cover it all. At this point, Barry felt as though he was out of tricks until he received a call that changed his life. It came from a man that Barry refers to in his biography as Ron Knox. Knox needed someone to clean his carpets. Barry offered to do the job himself. After all, everyone in Reseda knew Ron Knox was a mobster. Barry knew that mobsters periodically invested in small businesses, and despite the clear danger of getting involved with the Mafia, Barry's caution was outweighed by his desperation. So upon arriving in Knox's palatial home, he immediately slipped comments about his difficulties securing a loan into their chit-chat. As it turned out, Barry didn't have to work so hard. Knox had read his profile in Entrepreneur magazine and he was impressed. So much so that during the course of their initial conversation, it was unclear who was pitching who. And by the time Barry left Knox's home, the two had arrived at an agreement. Barry would provide Knox with documentation proving his restoration business was legitimate and, in return, Knox would secure him $100,000 a little over a quarter of a million dollars today. Barry contacted the same unscrupulous accountant who had prepared his fraudulent Rick Price documentation. After some bartering, the accountant agreed to do the same for his upcoming meeting with Knox. With his cooked books in hand, Barry met with Ron Knox. A combination of his immaculate fake records and the calm demeanor with which he presented them served to convince Knox that Z-Best was legitimate. Thus, as promised, Knox gave Barry a portion of the $100,000 loan. 
But before Barry could even begin to celebrate his success, Knox leaned in and offered a word of caution. Everything would go smoothly, so long as he made all his payments on time. It was only then that the reality of the agreement finally dawned on Barry. In his quest to be admired, he had made a deal with the devil. He'd gotten into bed with the mob. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Barry Minko. We'll learn how his fraudulent house of cards came tumbling down and see how the Wunderkind reinvented himself after the fact. For more information on Barry Minko, amongst the many sources we used, we found Wonderboy, Barry Minko, The Kid Who Swindled Wall Street by Daniel Axt, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Con Artist was written by Obiageli Odimegu, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Mm-hmm.